Well, good morning, everyone. Is my voice booming enough? Boom. Okay, uh, never mind. Um, my name is Pat, as you just heard. I'm married to Vanessa. And uh, b before we launch into today's topic, let me just tell you um, a story. A few, a few weeks ago, my wife and I went out for dinner. And um, we went to this restaurant. So there we were having our meal, and behind us sat a couple of ladies. Uh, now, these ladies were not of the same uh, socioeconomic status because as the conversation unfolded, one had more money than the other, and one made it known that she had more money than the other. So she took on a bragging tone uh, the house she had built for her mum, how much money she earned, and the other one uh, pushed back and started saying, um, mm, I don't have that kind of money, so I can't do what you're doing. Um, but rather, the, 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 the one who was leading the conversation did not respond uh, in a very comforting way, but she rather pressed on. And then she hit uh, a very sensitive topic, as we shall uh, soon uh, open up. And she, she said, all you can do, uh, uh, these are her words, all you can do is hire a maid for your cooking, a maid for taking care of a baby, and a maid for household chores. Now that hit me, that hit me deeply because I started asking the question, how much money does this woman earn to afford three maids? How much money does each one of those maids earn? And then I went further in my quiet musings and I asked the question, does each one of her maids have health insurance. And then I went a bit playful and I asked the question, has any one of her maids ever tasted a skinny latte? What of sushi? Do they each have passports which they can use to travel across the border and maybe visit Vic Falls? These were my internal musings. And I was interrupted rudely by my lovely wife who then asked me, what are you having for dinner? <laughs> now, as a true carnivore, I responded, steak. <laughs> and went further with one, one word, medium. Because every restaurant is measured, or rather it rises and falls upon the quality of the steak it produces. Can I get an amen? <laughs> <laughs> now, today we're looking at Philemon. And uh, the letter is written by Paul to a guy named Philemon. But interestingly, in the ancient world, when letters were written, they were always written with the idea that letters were shared in community. So I could write a personal letter to somebody, but you would be assured that that letter was not going to remain a private matter between a person A and a person B, because the contents of that letter had communal implications. And what we see in Philemon is a letter that has a communal implication, and we shall open it up in a moment. So this letter is written to Philemon by Paul, but the letter itself contains a message that is, is a communal uh, implication. The letter has 335 Koine Greek words. Now, how much can you say in 335? I know we struggle with 140 characters, but 335 is very short. But in 335 words, Paul makes a point and he delivers a knockout punch to something that we shall discover is relevant to our world today. He uses what is called epideictic, 
arguments to make a point that moves Philemon from a place of conviction, softening him and having him have a different worldview concerning people within his household. It is believed that the slave Onesimus had fled from Philemon in fear of punishment for some form of wrongdoing. And a few scholars have come up with the hypothesis called the runaway theory hypothesis, where it is believed Onesimus has stolen something from Philemon and he was fleeing for his life. Because according to Roman law, anyone who stole something from a villicus, which is the head of a household, was liable to capital punishment, even death. Because in those days, the slave was to an extent the property of the master. Now, Paul writes to mediate Onesimus' return, appealing to his authority to an extent as an apostle responsible for bringing both Philemon and Onesimus to faith. Although the letter is short, it has a lot to say about the gospel's impact and consequences, just as it has a lot to say to modern-day Southern African society. Now, in what follows, I'll try to draw the main lines of Philemon. And in there, what I aim to do is to show us that we should not just read Philemon as a letter that was written to Philemon at least 2,000 years ago, but it is a letter that is throbbing with life today, which should impact the way we view those we are in relationship with. So... I'll address social realities and domestic workers and their employers in South Africa. Before we launch, launch into it, allow me to read the text of Philemon. So if you have a Bible, please let us get to those 25 verses and uh, read through them. I'm reading from the HCSB, uh, the Holman's Christian Study Bible, if you want. Uh, and I'll be reading from verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus, and Timothy, our brother... To Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Achipas, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in his home, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Paul's standard opening. Grace and peace is standard opening that Paul uses in many of his letters. I always thank God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love and faith towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you from you, so I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I fathered him while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful, both to you and to me. I am sending him back to you as part of myself. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that you, sorry, so that your good deed might not be out of 
obligation, but out of your free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is special, he's especially so to me, but even more to you, but in the flesh, both in the flesh, rather, and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, accept him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Sorry. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you, that you owe me even your own self. Yes, brother, may I have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, since I am confident of your obedience. I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for, for me, for I have that through your prayers, for I hope rather that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now the first point I want to highlight is this, the social world of Philemon. Now it's important for us to know that the Bible was written at a particular time for a particular people going through particular life situations. So for us to just plunk the Bible from its, from its original context and try to apply to our world without considering the historicity, the historical realities behind the Bible is anathema. First, we go back in time, as the DJ said, way back, back into time. And if we do that, then we may appreciate what the Bible is saying to people then before we apply it to us today. Shall we do that? Now, what I want to highlight is this, masters and slaves. In the ancient world, society was heavily stratified. It was so stratified that you could get a picture of society through looking at the home. So the home was like a photograph of wider society. And the home had a head called a villicus. And in this case, the villicus is Philemon himself. What we see here is that Philemon was the head of a home, but in his home met the church. So you'll have the head of a home and his wife, the children, and slaves. This was the stratification of the home. And when you read Ephesians 5, you see this playing out quite well. Paul writes, and he says, Masters, husbands, Vilicus himself, children, and slaves. This stratification of the home structure was very important because it kept things in order. You could actually lift that picture and look at the wider Greco-Roman world and see the very same stratification. What's interesting though is that this was not just any other home, but this was a home in which the gospel had entered. And we're going to see how the gospel disturbs and rearranges the furniture within the home. Concerning slavery. Now, for most of us in here, when you hear the word slavery, the first thing you run to are the words, give us us free. <laughs> I said, give us us free. If you don't know that film, it is Amistad starring Jimon Honsu. And the picture we have of slavery is taken from the 17th to the 18th century, 
transatlantic slave trade. And we take that picture and we place it in the Bible and think that is what the Bible means when it talks about slavery. When actually the slavery we encounter in the Bible is totally different to give us as free. Maybe you do not know Amistad and you are more acquainted with the film 12 Years a Slave starring Jiwetel Ejiofu. That is not the slavery we encounter in the Bible. The slavery we see in the Bible is different. Although these movies depict the evils of the transatlantic slave, slave trade in gruesomely accurate fashion, this image cannot be retrojected into the first century reality of slavery. What do I mean? In the Greco-Roman world, slavery was widespread. It was multifaceted and complex. For instance, the slavery encountered in the New Testament is Roman diverging from the Hellenistic on the fundamental nature of the citizenship awarded those who broke free from slavery. Also, common to both the Roman and the Greek empires is the fact that slavery was not a function of racial prejudice. But rather, slavery was born out of pirate kidnappings. War. Birth, children could be born into slavery. Some people sold themselves into slavery to alleviate debts. And interestingly, some slaves even owned two or three slaves of their own because it was a lucrative business. So you, know, you could be in chains and you had another person whom you owned also in chains. Why? Because it was a good way of coming out of debt. So when we speak of slavery in the Bible, we should be very careful not to retroject what we see in the 17th and 18th century and pranking it back into the 1st century because those two forms of slavery differ completely. It is even reported that some slaves owned slaves of their own while others were highly skilled, more skilled than many free people. It is reported by some ancient sociologists that 60%, at least 60% of the Roman Empire was composed of slaves. And many people, when they read Philemon across the ages, then say, uh, slavery is not bad. It is good because Paul does not really challenge it. Giving us what is called the enthusiastic attitude, meaning those who condone slavery. And then you had others like William Wilberforce across the ages who then said, no, Paul had started something that was mushrooming and growing into a rebellion against what was instituted by society. You're having what is called the anti-enthusiastic attitude towards slavery. And these two positions are polarized. Now, on these grounds, it becomes imperative to differentiate between the 17th century slave trade and slavery in the Greco-Roman world. In the ancient world, slavery was legal. It was so legal that it was protected by law. And we therefore can't just flatten out our understanding of slavery from the 17th century and driving it back into the first century. To quote a social media philosopher of our time, first century slavery, she's complicated. 
Now, the church in Philemon's household was most probably governed within the parameters of what is called the Hausterfeln, which is a German word meaning a household code. Now, to state that the household was the foundation of civilization in the Greco-Roman society is far from exaggeration. The basic unit of the Greco-Roman society in which Paul lived and ministered was the household. Its importance was such that secular ethicists saw the stability of the state as dependent upon responsible management of the household. These are Towner's words. I'll read it again. The basic unit of the Greco-Roman society in which Paul lived and ministered was the household. Its importance was such that secular ethicists saw the stability of the city-state as dependent upon responsible management of a household. In other words, if the household fell apart, then society, according to Roman understanding, would fall apart. In this unit of social interaction, Philemon illuminates the dynamics between the household head, the Vilicus, and one of his many slaves, Duloi. In this continuum, we see that the household functioned as a microcosm of the empire at large. Now, concerning the head of the household, which is the curious, the master, we hear these words coming from Ham. The Greek word curious was also used to minister, to mean rather master, in the context of master-slave relationships. In the eastern part of the Roman Empire, curios was used in worship of emperor, or the emperor is divine, rather. Now, although the house of was the most probable organization of in Philemon's home, the reality of social dissonance between early Christianity and the established social order is apparent in Philemon. Philemon informs us of, of a particular instance where social convention within a house church and the institution of slavery in the Greco-Roman world collide dramatically. How can you be a Christian and support slavery? This is the question that Philemon poses to us today. This collision heralds the potential transformation of social orders through the reconciliatory force of a gospel. And with this understanding, I want to move on to the next point, which is honor and shame. Now, in the 21st century Southern African context, if I were to say, what drives your thinking? What do you wake up in the morning for? You may say, well, maybe to feel good or to go to the gym. But I can assure you, many of us in here wake up to get cash. I need cash to get by. So what preoccupies us getting up, us getting a job, us, li us living there, is actually the need to acquire cash. In the first century, that was not the primary motivation of an ordinary Mediterranean citizen. The ordinary Mediterranean citizen was preoccupied with, I don't get up to get cash, but I get cash to get honor. So what preoccupied the first century citizen was not cash need, but rather honor need, and the desire to move up social rungs. So whenever we read the Bible, we should not think, oh, they are looking for cash, oh, they want to, no, rather we should think, what is this doing to their honor status? 
And in Philemon, we see a good picture of somebody who is about to receive or somebody losing honor or wrestling with the whole question of how do I get elevated in my honor status? It is said in many cultures that um, the collision between Western thinking and Eastern thinking is shown clearly in areas of honor and shame. I grew up in a culture that ce celebrates your dignity among, within the community and not so much your individuality and achievement as you stand alone. That's an honor and shame culture. Whereas in the Western way of thinking, my individuality determines who I am. In the Bible, we see the former and not the latter. Honor determines how one stands and how one is perceived within the community. And that is more important than one's establishment as an individual. Now, the Greco-Roman world is so saturated with the understanding of honor and shame in that honor in itself was not ubiquitous, but it was a limited commodity. So what honor you had, you could receive by being born into a certain family. So if your family was honorable, you could be regarded honorable. If your family was shameful, you could be regarded shameful. Where was Jesus born? In what family was Jesus born? Was it in family of high honor or very low honor? Jesus is regarded shameful even from birth. And these are questions we should approach the Bible with, knowing the social world that regulated the very fabric of the Mediterranean world. Honor and shame is a key hermeneutical tool to use when reading the New Testament. Malia calls honor is something that can be acquired or ascribed. It was of grave importance to retain what honor one had since gaining honor through challenging an opponent to move up the social standings or so to move up the social standings was a reality that preoccupied every first century Mediterranean citizen. Evidently, this rendered the undertones of social interaction somewhat competitive. So in all our social interactions in the first century, honor and shame is what we're trying to get. So if I act in a way that is shameful, I could lose honor. If I acted in a way that was honorable, let's say I win a battle, I could gain more honor and my social standing will increase with that. Now, Cockrell, in his Hebrews commentary, says it was crucial. It was crucial to have a sense of what, what, what was shameful, since a person's identity and reputation were closely identified with the honor and recognition, recognition rather, given one for appropriately fulfilling his or her place in society. Furthermore, one shared the honor or shame of one's social group. Thus, it was honorable to act in such a way that one protected the honor and public approval of, the, of the, those groups to which one belonged. Now, in reading Philemon, we encounter a master with great honor, that is Philemon himself, and a slave with little honor. The gospel mediated by Paul to both men penetrates their interactions, bringing about an, a change in honor status for both Philemon and, an, and Onesimus. 
In other words, Onesimus acquires honor through the gospel and is seen by Paul as Hoketi Hos Dolon Al Hupedulon Adelphon Agapon, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is no longer with little honor, but he has gained more honor and he is a dear brother. Interestingly, if we place Jesus in the narrative, we can see him identifying with the slave Onesimus. We can see Jesus in Paul mediating grace between Philemon and Onesimus, just as he does for the sinner before God. So Jesus is Philemon, Jesus is Paul, and Jesus is Onesimus. He identifies with all three of them. Now, here are five things I want to highlight concerning the gospel in Philemon before we bring this thing to South Africa. Five things we should be attentive to. The first thing is Philemon presents us with a gospel that saves. A gospel that saves. Reading Philemon 10, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. This is very important because what we see here is that Paul is making the point that Onesimus has become a Christian through his ministration. The term for my child is actually a rabbinic expression of the relationship between a rabbi and a disciple. Onesimus, a slave, has become a child of a rabbi, meaning a disciple of Paul, whom he actually has brought to the faith during his time in prison. Now, he uses the language of begetting. So the Greek construction there is the language of whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. In other words, this is actually deeply spiritual, and it's actually a reflection of Jesus who is begotten of the Father. It's an echo of that. I have begotten him in my imprisonment. And it's beautiful to read because Paul is making the point that his identity is very much similar to that identity which Onesimus now has. He's saying a slave and I now share the same identity because of the gospel. And we'll continue with this in a moment. Now... Onesimus through Paul becomes a Christian, and this is a message relevant to Christian employers of domestic workers today. The relationship with domestic workers should not be relegated to transactional interaction where I give you money and you give me a service, and that's where it ends. If you are a Christian and you employ a domestic worker, there is a filial identity between yourself and your domestic worker because actually the message of the gospel has caused you and your domestic worker to share an identity. Beyond this ministration of the gospel, a discipleship relationship should form where like Paul, the employer may use filial language, not to patronize, but to disciple the domestic worker to spiritual maturity. Domestic workers are part of the harvest that actually needs the gospel. Second point I want to highlight is a gospel 
that forgives. Reading from Philemon 18 to 19, we read, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to I will repay it to say nothing of you, you of your owing me, even your own self. Uh, Philemon has no choice. These words are like a knockout blow. You, how can you argue against that? He, he's writing to him, but actually, you don't have a choice. <laughs> you owe me your own life, Paul is saying. The very honor you have is you have it because of the ministry of the gospel to you. And friends, this is a challenge to us today. If we have domestic workers, we should not look at privilege, be it white privilege or BEE privilege, as something we say, oh, I have achieved because I'm black. No, you have what you have because of the gospel. So white privilege goes out of a window. BEE privilege goes out of a window. Why? Because fundamentally your identity and your identity has been transformed by the message of a gospel that has actually caused us to see things a different way. There is gospel privilege that leads to gospel ministration. And we'll open that up in a moment. It must be said that Paul does not owe Philemon anything. It is Philemon who owes Paul, for it is through Paul that Philemon is converted. Secondly, Paul is telling Philemon to forgive Onesimus on the basis that his account can afford the right to right the wrongs of Onesimus. In other words, Paul has enough credit in his account to cover the sins of Onesimus. Who else has an account? that is rich with grace to cover the sins of anyone. Paul is acting like Jesus, mediating grace between offender and offended. Paul has enough credit in the honor account to pay Onesimus. Listen, in the honor account. By virtue of leading Philemon to Christ, Paul is embodying forgiveness as Christ did. It is Christ who died for the sinner, paying for the sinner's offense with his life, thus providing the currency for the forgiveness of sin that satisfies the Father's wrath fully. Philemon and Onesimus are invited to participate in the outworking of a gospel as we see here. Next point I want to highlight is a gospel that reconciles. Now, reconciliation is not a pretty term. It is actually a term born out of violence. We can't have reconciliation without violence. And violence not instigated, but violence quenched. So violence when quenched by propitiatory sacrifice creates reconciliation between two warring parties. The stories in missiological circles of people who went to different lands and when they got there they realized that actually uh, maybe they got there and then they, they, they saw um, 
a, few, a, a population dying of a plague or a disease, and they would offer up, the, the native population would offer up their children to a particular god to appease the god's anger. In the ancient world, it is recorded that before a person could actually go on a journey, they had to appease maybe the god of the sea, so that the god of the sea would give them safe passage. That's why you hear, oh, please, Lord, give us traveling messes. Why? That is coming from that world of appeasing the god so that you don't get destroyed on your way. Reconciliation has an appeasement of anger to it. And in the biblical narrative, God has provided the one that propitiates, the one who averts his anger from us, and his name is Jesus. And in this case, we see Paul doing the same. He is averting what Onesimus deserves from Philemon, and he's putting it on himself, reconciling in the process both Philemon and Onesimus and bringing them to peace with one another. Philemon and Onesimus are brothers because of a reconciliation ministered by Paul himself. The thing I want to highlight is a gospel that elevates. Now, often we are comfortable with the gospel that tells you, listen, you're forgiven and you're fine. But the gospel actually changes. <laughs> Let me put it this way. A lot of us are very comfortable knowing what we are saved from. We know that Jesus forgives my sin. We know that Jesus deals with my past. We know that Jesus is the one who takes away the judgment I deserve. But we're not so much comfortable and so much mature in what we are saved to. We're clear on what we're saved from, but we're not very mature and clear on what we're saved to. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a need for us to understand both what we're saved from and what we're saved to. And in this case, Paul is saying, Philemon is not only, sorry, Onesimus is not only saved from what he did wrong to you yesterday, but he's also saved to something to become elevated in his social standing. And we can't live with one side of the coin only. Where we like to hear, oh, yesterday Jesus did this. Oh, thank you, Lord, for the sins you forgave. Oh, thank you, Lord, for taking me out of the clutches of the... When actually, so socially, nothing is changing around us. There is a need to have a gospel that informs us of what we are saved from and now introduces us to what we are saved to. Sorry, I get excited. I am on fire. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> If it were WhatsApp, you could see a little flame. One, two, three, four. <laughs> this guy is on fire. Uh, Philemon, what we are saved to. And in this case, we see Onesimus being introduced no longer as a slave. I know Bethel have done a good song. No longer. <laughs> They took it from here. <laughs> it's biblical. <laughs> Friends, the gospel elevates. No longer as a born servant, but more than a born servant, is a beloved brother. 
<laughs> that is like changing your birth certificate, rip, ripping it apart and giving you a new one. That is like giving you new citizenship. That is like giving you an ID. Uh, that is giving you permanent residency if you're a foreigner. That is, it is different. <laughs> giving, you, giving you different documentation, no longer as a bond servant, but as a dear brother. Let me just open this up a bit. In the ancient world, you could tell who you were socially by whom you ate with. If you wanted to know where you were stationed in society, you just looked around your table. If you were eating with aristocrats, then you knew that you were in. And not only were you eating with them, it is where you sat around the table. There were certain positions that you were placed in depending on your social standing. Today we say head of a table and stuff. <laughs> actually, it comes from way back when. And in the ancient world, you would not just sit on a, on, on a chair. You would actually recline. So you would actually be bosom. <laughs> that's where it comes from. Bosom pearls. Because as you ate, you would recline into each other. What is John doing when he's eating the Last Supper with Jesus? He is in the bosom of Jesus. Why? Because he's at a place of high honor. He is a disciple that Jesus loves. Friends, when Paul says, no longer as a slave, he is me, he's saying, the guy who was cleaning your toilets two weeks ago now is worthy to sit at your table, not as a slave, but as an equal because his social standing has changed. They're getting the worry. The guy you were sending to do your errands, the guy you were sending to do all kinds of stuff that you don't like is actually worthy to be around your table because he is, the gospel has penetrated his life so much that he is no longer what he was, but he is worthy to sit around the table. The gospel elevates a slave from a slave to more than a slave to a dear brother with equal status with the master of a house. He goes on, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. <laughs> wow. One of the, in, the, in the ancient world, one of the greatest privileges you could afford a visitor was the gift of hospitality. And what happened in Genesis, two, uh, three angels uh, go to Abraham, and then only two go further. Uh, three angels go to Abraham, and they have a meal. Oh, Abraham, that's actually God. <laughs> and the, the, God visits Abraham, and they have a meal. And then in, he, in Hebrews we read, Sorry, I'm paraphrasing now. Some of you entertained angels without knowing. What he's talking about Abraham, who gave the gift of hospitality to strangers. Friends, in the ancient world, hospitality was important because those who were on the journey or traveling could actually end up in inns, and inns were known to be places where all kinds of debauchery happened. You want to pick up girls? You go to the inn. You want to smoke something? You go to the inn. Why? Because inns accommodated those who were not given hospitality. So, when Paul says, Receive him as you receive me. He's saying, this man is not outside the family of God, but he deserves the hospitality that every Christian envoy deserves. Are we getting this? 
Hospitality was not only about eating together, but it was also a marker that showed who was in as a member of the community and who was out. And in this case, Paul is saying Onesimus is in because the gospel has come to him. A gospel for the future. Philemon 22 reads, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I'll be graciously given to you. Friends, if you remember when we opened up earlier, that Paul, the, the, the letter of Philemon oh, gives us three stations. It gives us Philemon, the head of a house. We get Onesimus, the slave, and we get Paul, the mediator. And in this case, Paul is saying, I am hoping that through your prayers, I'll be graciously returned to you. I'm coming back, is what, is what he's saying. My aim is to come back. And if you have not done what I've encouraged you to do, Philemon, I will not be happy. Are you getting this? If you do not do what, you have, what I've encouraged you to do, which is to receive this guy as a dear brother, I will not be happy. Guess who's coming back again? <laughs> Guess who's coming back again? And if we have not treated our domestic workers the way we should treat them, do you think he'll be happy? If we have not let the gospel penetrate our relationships with our, domestic, with our domestic workers to the point that they are not just a domestic worker, but more than a domestic worker, but a dear brother, a dear sister, what do you think he's going to say to you and I? Friends, my last point is Philemon and South African or Southern African realities. And let me just qualify that. There's something called colonialism. We can't escape it. We can't hide from it. It happened. And there are certain shockwaves that still reverberate in our society today because of colonialism. White privilege, if you don't believe in it, I'm sorry, uh, it, it is there. BEE, it is not fair in some places. In some places, it is very good. We can't ignore these facts. But as a church, we do not begin with the lens of white privilege or the lens of BEE. Rather, we begin with the lens of gospel. And we critique everything from them. Concerning colonialism, the reality is when, when people came to Africa in the scramble and partition of Africa, they came with certain cultures, and one of the vestiges of what has remained in Southern African society is that we do have domestic help. You go to Zimbabwe, which is where I'm from, I grew up with domestic workers. We had a, a guy who worked in the garden. We had a lady who worked in the home. But they were never quite part of the family. When I had lunch, I would sit at the table, they'll sit outside. When I had lunch, they'll cook the lunch, but they could get leftovers from yesterday. I'm getting this. Where did that come from? It came from the language of Ubasu, Master, and even in, in, in Zulu, Klosa. Why? Because the white person was synonymous with employment. We can't escape this. But we can't stay there. As a gospel people, we can't stay there. We've got to move from there to a place where we read the Bible and apply it to our context and change things that need to be changed according to the gospel narrative. So the reality of domestic help is not exclusive to South Africa. It is broader than South Africa. It is across Southern Africa. 
end, the culture that perpetuates it is the same. In some places, domestic help is synonymous with control and abuse. Where domestic workers are abused. And I'm not saying domestic workers are perfect. That's not my claim. But I'm, my narrative is around this. There's a lot of abuse that comes with domestic workers being employed within the Southern African context. I want to open this up a bit, and um, you may be offended, and if you are, I'm sorry, but the objective is not to offend, but to challenge us to think in a gospel-centered way. The social disparity between Philemon and Onesimus is eradicated through the gospel, and this should have implications on the way the church in Southern Africa shapes the narrative between domestic workers and employers. Here are some considerations. The Gini coefficient, which is basically a measurement of how much resources can be shared between, between uh, a certain group of people, and it also measures disparity to a certain extent, is currently sitting at 0 0.63 and 0 0.7. And South Africa is now top of the list. It used to be Brazil a couple of years ago, but the Gini coefficient is now between 0 0.63 and 0 0.7. And basically, it's saying if you have 10, 10 rand in your pocket, how many people can share that 10 rand? If you have many people sharing that 10 rand, then your coefficient goes high. If you have few people sharing that, that 10 rand, then your Gini coefficient goes low. In South Africa, according to an Oxfam report, two of the richest billionaires, and I'm, talking, I'm not talking rand billionaires, I'm talking dollar billionaires, in South Africa have a combined wealth of more than 25 million of the population combined. So the gap between rich and poor is constantly increasing. And the middle class is present but is filling out because it is being stretched by these socioeconomic disparities. There's inequality between male and female. It's interesting that domestic workers in South Africa, the huge population of domestic workers in South Africa is comprised mainly of female workers. You do have male, males, but it's mainly females. And the, the reality is ladies are normally paid less within work, which is an injustice in itself. And it's exacerbated by this reality of of the rich having more and the poor having very little, which is constantly increasing on a day-to-day -day basis. The latent inequalities in society don't place the domestic worker, female, in an advantageous position with the option of upward mobility. In other words, it is very easy for a person to be a domestic worker for 30, 40 years of their life without any way of getting out of that form of employment. My challenge to the church in my writing as I'm wrestling with my research at the moment is, is there a way that a domestic worker can be contracted for five years and after five years leave domestic work and become a teacher? Because somehow as the domestic worker interacts with the people of God, there is an investment 
into their skill set that makes it possible for them to move from domestic work to not just a domestic worker, but more than a domestic worker, a teacher in the field of education. Can the church mobilize something like that? Maybe a teacher, maybe an, whatever it may be. But can we have a mentality that says, you're not stuck here with me forever, but rather I am contributing to the improvement of your skill set so that you can develop into a better citizen within society and contribute more because the skills in you can be sharpened? It's just a question. The other thing I see also is resocialization, what sociologists call a resocialization at the primary level. When the gospel comes to us, it resocializes us. We see the world differently. And my question around this, or my questions around this are as follows. If the gospel has resocialized me at the primary level, there are things I can do now that I couldn't do then. I'll tell you a story. I have a friend in Cape Town, his name is Bunda Kadima. He's from the DRC. When he came into this country, South Africa that is, he was a car guard. Today he owns a business, not because he worked hard, but rather a gospel-informed man took him under his wing, taught him how to save money, taught him how to order a meal in a restaurant, taught him how to speak English, taught him how to use a computer. He was re-socialized at the primary level and he was discipled to a better citizen, contributing greater because he had capacity to do so. Bunda Kadima is his name. My question is, how many employers of domestic workers in the Southern African context are not just getting a service from their domestic workers, but are actually investing in their domestic workers to become more than just a domestic worker, but a dear brother participating in the social formation of this country and contributing to their upward mobility. I asked myself the question, when was the last time I had dinner with somebody who does not look like me or speak with the same twang I do? I often say this, but is my tongue multicultural enough? Do I enjoy sushi as much as I enjoy pap? Or am I so fixed to my enjoyment of what I've entered as a social class that I now have an ignorant approach to those who do not look, taste, sound, buy, drive like me? Because Philemon is not only speaking to one who was saved in the past, but rather introducing us to one who is now saved towards something. Resocialized at the primary level. Ask myself the question Have I ever been to my domestic worker's home? Have I seen where they live? If they are more than a slave but a dear brother, that means they should feel comfortable coming to my place as much as I am comfortable going to their place? Or do I enjoy the opulence of a coffee shop in Linwood and do not like stepping into Tembisa because that means crossing boundaries that make me feel uncomfortable? Have I, do I know their children's names These are questions that are brewing in me.
And these questions are prompted by my reading of Philemon. Do you have an employment investment policy for your domestic worker? Well, let me put it this way. Maybe you are a fan of the stock market, the JSC, and you've got an investment portfolio of so many shares across the board. And now with Brexit having gone, you know that you're actually in the money because a few shares went down and you bought quickly. And now you're just waiting for that thing to rise and come out when it's ripe and ready. Did you think of your domestic worker and what an opportunity that could be for them to have upward mobility? Or did you include them in your plans? Let me put it this way. How much do you pay your domestic worker? Is it a salary to live on? Or is it just a minimum wage stipulated by the government? Is it a salary to flourish on? Well, let me make it a bit personal. Can your son or your daughter who's about to go to varsity live on that which you're giving a domestic worker? If they save 10% of what they are being paid, can they come out of their social bracket and have upward mobility? These are questions I'm asking. How many domestic workers can walk into your church and feel at home? Or let me put it this way. Can your domestic worker be one of your elders in your church because this is not about education or social standing but rather this is about the gospel are they potential elders leaders in your church that can work for you monday to friday but you can actually submit to on a sunday because you are an elder because eldership is not measured by how much money you have but according to 1 timothy 3 Does your domestic worker live with you? If they do, do they have a family? If they do, when was the last time they saw their family? The irony of, I take care of your family, but I don't see my family. Have we thought beyond, ooh, maybe this could promote immorality? Actually, it could contribute to the statistics of HIV AIDS because they are living away from their family. And these are questions I'm asking. Friends, the plight of a domestic worker in South Africa is not something we should ignore because the gospel does not begin with the people over there that we go and do a short-term mission with. It begins in our home. And the challenge of a gospel is this. You and I have got a mission field right in front of us. And it's a mission field that we are already rooted in. Excuse the pun. And the objective is this, to reflect what Paul is encouraging in Philemon means what verse 16 says, no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. Do you let your brother eat in a different room to yours on the floor while you're enjoying a different meal to what they prepared for you? Or do you eat and share the same meal? If we do, 
Let's break bread, knowing that it's not just around the dinner table, but it's around all of life. God bless you. Thank <laughs> you.